episode 435 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. And in today's episode, I will try to say the correct episode title uh, and number throughout the entire episode, unlike last week where I had a dyslexic episode. Oh, I did not even notice. <laughs> I kept calling it... Uh, 344 or something i don't know it was bad it was a whole i was like listening back and i'm like i wish you were like moderately intelligent um (laughs) well this episode we're gonna be hitting movies that we saw this week in part one and in part two we're gonna be doing our second patreon pick movie which is 1961's blast of silence courtesy Mm -hmm. of chad newsome thank you chad yeah thank you chad all right. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and jump into jump into stuff. Let's jump into the whole whole things. I'm gonna give it over to you just since you have the uh, the new release, which is not yeah. Avatar two. I'll just find you. I have not seen The Ways of Water or whatever that movie is called. Um, it seems like one that we need like Michael to see and like come up with something. Maybe. Um, yeah, I don't know if we have any James Cameron heads uh, in Cinematary right now, but, um, you know, the discourse is probably better off without us on that one. Um, anyways, the movie that I saw this week um, is Noah Baumbach's White Noise, um, which is a movie that I've been anticipating for some time, uh, not necessarily because I thought it would be good, uh, but because I just felt like I needed to see it. Um This is an adaptation of a novel I like a lot uh, by Don DeLillo. It came out in 1984. Um, It is a classic postmodernist novel uh, that is about a lot of things, um, most centrally, I guess, consumerism and the various ways in which our consumerist society uh, sort of affects the human psyche. Um, and also it's about academia and, and all sorts of other stuff, just kind of in this, this, you know, big, strange, postmodern mix of a novel. Um, and the reason I've been looking forward to watching the movie is that, uh, it is a novel that doesn't really feel like it lends itself to being a movie. Um, it's very cerebral, uh, does not have any sort of, you know, clear, narrative through line um it's just kind of bopping around from topic to topic um there is a a big uh spectacle um in the middle of the book uh called the airborne toxic event um that is very cinematic uh, but it is not exactly like the focal point of the story um so i didn't really know how they were going to do this um it, it just feels like an unfilmable book to me um and after seeing it i uh can confirm uh this does not translate to a good movie uh in my opinion uh they Noah bombach and company uh have have given this like the most literal treatment possible um you have almost every single um, element of the book here um, but that I think that it would probably be better if they had done taken some more creative liberties and, and made it into something that you know made more sense as a movie um, what we have uh, instead is just this very uh, strange stiff dramatization um, of the book's uh, laundry list of uh, strange scenes and character interactions. Um, and I can't really imagine what 
a viewer who has not read the book is going to take away from this movie. Um, it's just it's just really bizarre. Um, and I'm struggling to articulate exactly what is bizarre about it. Um, but anyways, the, the basic plot of this, it stars Adam Driver uh, and Greta Gerwig um, as Jack Gladney and Bebet Gladney. Um, Jack is an academic. Um, he has... Uh, pioneered his own field in academia, which is Hitler studies. Um, you you see him give uh, presentations on you know the psyche of German citizens going to attend um, a Hitler rally, um, where he talks about you know the the most baseline uh, desire that is being fulfilled by attending the rally is the desire to be part of a crowd. Um, uh, Babette, his wife, uh, again, played by Greta Gerwig, um, what she does is a little more unclear. She teaches classes, um, that, you know, vary, uh, from like, you see her, her doing some sort of aerobic stuff in, in the, the movie. Uh, but she also talks about teaching eating classes and in the book, it mentions her teaching walking classes and things like that. And so there's somewhat of a, uh, a spoof here, of people teaching things that, um, or, or, or kind of like, uh, becoming experts, um, in things that are not, um, I don't know, traditionally thought of as academic pursuits. Uh, there's also a character named Murray, uh, played in, in the, the movie by Don Cheadle, um, who studies car crashes in American cinema. And then later he tries to pivot to being an, an, uh, an Elvis scholar, um, so it, it's, it's sort of a send up of the ways in which, uh, pop culture gets filtered through an academic lens. There's an early scene. I think the first scene of the movie is Don Cheadle's character, um, explaining, uh, the deep hidden meaning of, uh, car crashes in American movies and how they're actually this expression of like freedom and American optimism and things like that. Um, so the, 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 the basic takeaway, I guess, is, is that, you know, academia can kind of get up its own ass a little bit and just like ascribe meaning to things that were not ever intended to be read as such. Um, but you know, where it goes from that, that setup is, is strange. Um, you know, you get a lot of, uh, scenes of these characters interacting in their home and just having these overlapping Robert Altman-esque conversations. Um, uh, Adam Driver's character and Greta Gerwig's character have a conversation about like who should die first. Um, it, it's, uh, like the, the kinds of things they're talking about are just not things that are generally discussed, um, in, uh, a narrative film. And, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, there is this big spectacular thing that happens in the middle of it called the airborne toxic event where an, uh, an oil tanker, um, hits a train that is carrying a bunch of radioactive material and it, it becomes this great cloud that is floating over the city. Um, and I, I wonder if um, what inspired the making of this movie was COVID because there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of focus uh, paid to the public reaction to this, this huge um, toxic uh, event um, and, and people's paranoia about how much they have been exposed to it and what symptoms they're supposed to have and what emotional reaction they're supposed to have. Um, you know, there's, there's also that, that, um, 
that idea about like people wanting to be part of a crowd um, when you in a scene where one of Jack's uh, daughters is is looking into the windows of other cars trying to figure out how other people are feeling in this moment so that she can attune her own reaction to the way that she's supposed to feel um, and uh, it, it then veers in the third act into something different entirely which is uh, you know, Jack going on into this like almost detective story of trying to figure out um, what is this strange medicine that he's found that his wife is secretly taking uh, behind his back. Um, and it, it turns out, I guess, spoilers for this thing that doesn't really make all that much sense, that the medicine is meant to like stave off the fear of death. Um, and she has uh, gotten it through uh, a classified ad in a tabloid. Um, and so th- there's there's kind of a, a strain running through the story about people like trying to uh, look to American pop culture um, and and mass media like tabloids um, for the answers to these like deep human questions that can never truly be answered, um, whether they're looking in, in tabloid newspapers or in Elvis or in car crashes or in whatever. Um, and yeah, it just doesn't really all come together and it, it doesn't feel right on the screen. Um, the, the way the dialogue is written is just really sardonic, sardonic and satirical and just doesn't feel human. Um, and when you're reading a novel, especially a novel that's um, written in this heightened academic language, um, there is a, a certain degree of remove that you have as a reader from, you know, the reality of these conversations and just to see it all dramatized, um, in this overly literal, uh, sense, um, it, it, it just feels weird. It feels wrong. It feels off. Um, and maybe that is what Noah Baumbach wants us to feel. I don't know. Uh, but for me, the, uh, the part of the movie that was most successful, um, was the part that, um, went off script from DeLillo's novel. Um, the last scene of the novel um, involves, but is not limited to, uh, the Gladney family going to the supermarket, and the supermarket is described in these like utopian, almost religious terms as like this is a place where people gather and celebrate something sacred, um, and in the movie. Um, this is the credit sequence, and it is done as a uh, song and dance number uh, to this new song by LCD Sound System that was written for the movie. Uh, that is just like a banger of a song. I love this song. It's called New Body Rumba. Um, I would definitely recommend listening to the song even if you do not go watch the movie. And uh, in the movie, you you see all these characters uh, just doing these interpretive dances uh, to this song with the various products that they're buying, you know, grabbing a box of cereal and like pirouetting around the aisle with it uh, to the rhythm of the song. And um, at no point does anybody ever like talk about the significance of the uh, uh, of the, the supermarket, but they're kind of embodying it and acting it out um, in a way that uh, feels more um, in conversation with the language of film. You know, uh, musicals are kind of in and of themselves this utopian uh, expression of like 
you know, hu- humans coming together in, in, uh, and, and achieving these larger than life, uh, um, you know, physical feats. And that to me felt like it was an expression of like the spirit of what was going on in the novel without, you know, writing out every single letter of it. Um, and there's also things that are just better in prose. Like there, the, the novel also includes a lot of, um, lists of things like, um, the very first page of the book involves Jack watching, um, a procession of, uh, incoming freshmen driving into his college. And he starts describing, um, all the things that are being taken out of their station wagons, uh, stereo sets, radios, personal computers, small refrigerators and table ranges, the cartons of phonograph records and cassettes, the hair dryers and styling irons, the tennis rackets, soccer balls, hockey and lacrosse sticks, etc., etc., etc. And like these are not things that can really be translated to film um, because there's there's something about like seeing all those things just like chunked into this list um, that. Uh, that you can choose to read um, in minute detail or just kind of let your eyes glaze over. Um, like, that just... It, it, it just works better as a book. Like, that, that is my thesis of my review. Um, and I think that the actors all do a, a perfectly fine job. Adam Driver is kind of channeling some of the things he was doing in Annette uh, last year. Um, Greta Gerwig, I was, uh, I was mostly struck by how they did Greta Gerwig's hair in this movie. Um, Babette's hair is described at length as just like, uh, being this like really huge, uh, frizzy, curly blonde mane. Um, one character, uh, says that she has important hair, um, and that they capture the importance of the hair really well (laughs) in the way that they, uh, they make up her character. Um... But yeah, it, it, it just it just feels weird. Uh, Noah Baumbach's dialogue um, in, in his other movies um, does feel like not so far removed from what Duolo uh, is doing in the dialogue in his novel. Um, it is kind of uh, academic and and uh, arch uh, and, and distanced in a way. Um, but for some reason, it just doesn't quite work here. I mean, maybe maybe part of it is like the overlapping dialogue doesn't feel like it works uh, because I want to um, be able to experience kind of the full impact of all these ridiculous things that get said. Um, but yeah, it just just doesn't quite work for me. Well, it seems uh, also kind of off because he's usually he has dialogue. It's very like. It's usually like with like different you know personalities, relationships, things like that. And almost from what you're describing, in terms of like how it kind of should be handling the material broadly, it seems like something more like what Paul Thomas Anderson has been doing recently with like a you know a inherent vice or a licorice pizza or something, which is like dealing with a lot of stuff on the outside, but having this very insular story in the inside. Yeah, I could see maybe Paul Thomas Anderson um, having a, an easier time with with white noise. I think that the conspiratorial tone that Inherent Vice is able to strike, I think, is uh, is more along the lines of, of what a white noise adaptation should feel like. Um, this just feels like a, a dramatization of like the literal facts of the uh, the plot. 
which doesn't really like the plot is just not the most important thing about it. It, it doesn't have a traditional three act structure. It doesn't have a super coherent through line. It's just kind of this very cerebral floating, you know, pseudo academic thing. Um, so it'll be on Netflix soon. It's a Netflix movie, although it was produced, I think, in association with A24. Um, so people can, you know, watch it at no cost very soon and, and make up their own mind about it. Um, but I, if this is not obvious at this point in the review, I do very much recommend reading the novel. Uh, it's it's fantastic. Um, but movie not so much imo i just like you said that adam driver has like the same annette energy it's like you know person only watches annette that's the only movie they watch and i'm getting annette vibes from this (laughs) (laughs) it's not the annette vibes of like when he's on stage and like pretending to be a monkey and stuff like that it's more like the vibes of him in these these strange musical numbers in annette um talking about I'm traveling across the world. I'm traveling across the world. Like it's just so dry um, and overly literal that it is funny at times. All right. White noise. Like you said, it'll be on Netflix soon. So you can compete with family members. Do we want to watch white noise or do we want to watch glass onion? You definitely want to watch glass onion. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, all right, cool. Well, uh, I got one. This one's, a. older release um but merry christmas mr lawrence not totally a christmas movie it's just it had it in the title so i was like i better watch it around christmas time um there's like there's a very pivotal scene in it that takes place at christmas but not inherently a yeah whatever it could be a christmas movie it's you know <laughs> i think that a uh, blast of silence is a christmas movie oh 100 a, that's what and that's how it was sold to me was it's like a christmas noir and mm. i was like hell yeah let's do that <laughs> um it's kind of I, I would say it's christmasy in the same way um but merry christmas mr lawrence um it's from 1983 it's directed by nagisha oshima who uh we uh destroyed earlier this year for in the realm of the senses which strangely for our youtube people is like one of our most popular youtube uh episodes so that's just people trying to watch porn on youtube i know that's how i that's how i like finagled the like <laughs> seo on it i was like i was like Who, where are all you perverts at and you gotta listen to us um this one way there's there's no pornography in this one it's a, it's a very starch like count you know counter to that um but it play, takes place in 1942 they're in java um it's uh you know, during world war Two. you have um the this japanese uh, uh uh what am i thinking of prisoners of war <laughs> japanese prisoner of war camp for uh, british soldiers um, and you have uh, Colonel Lawrence, played by Tom Conti, who's very good in this. There's a lot of like Tom Conti, like just face and like looks and stuff that he gives that are just great. Um, he just has like this kind of like sensitivity to it. You know, you think it's it very much throws you off. This is like a for like something that's a war movie. You never really feel it doesn't feel like a war movie, even though it's taking place during World War Two. I can see why you don't. I don't see this necessarily like linked to other very famous World War II movies. Um, but Colonel Lawrence, he's a British, uh, he's a British colonel, but he has a really ex- pretty extensive knowledge of Japanese culture as well as he can speak it. 
Um, and so he kind of plays as this liaison between the camp, the, the British soldiers in the camp, and um, the two people kind of running the camp. You have Sergeant Hara, who is kind of the, the strong man who comes in and keeps people in line. And then Captain Yanoi, who is the Ryuchi Sakamoto character, who is the, he's the captain of the camp. Um, and so the, the beginning of the movie is very much just kind of like getting a sense of the, the dichotomies there. You know, Lawrence um, is somebody who clearly has influence with Sergeant Hara and, and Captain Yanoi but at the same time is a prisoner of war. Um, and the movie kicks off where um, Sergeant Hara and a number of other soldiers are trying to kind of do a, a uh, you know, uh, almost like a pirate court of um, these two. One, uh, it's a Dutch soldier who is imprisoned there and, and a um, and one of the... the I think they say he's Korean, though, but one of the, the officers at the camp who um, they allege um, had, you know, were, were taking part in having, uh, having sex, um, but they don't really get into detail of, like, you know, what, what they were doing, but they're, they're accused of having sex, and they are, they're kind of just thrown in this, um, this field and uh, Sergeant Hara and a lot of the soldiers are just kind of belitt- you know belittling them, um, saying that they're going to uh, to to you know kill them and all this kind of stuff. And the, it's completely stopped by Captain Yunoi, who eventually comes over and um, you know kind of sets up that there has to be kind of ground rules and play. There has to be kind of a proper trial to a degree, which is a very one. It kind of sets the scene for the two sides of the movie that you're going to see one. You do have, um, this kind of, uh, homoeroticism that's kind of piercing through the movie among, between the characters. And then two, you have like this, despite the chaos of like the war and all, you know, the situation they're in, there is like this structure to it. Like, you know, there's not, you're, you're only really getting in trouble if you're diverting away from the structure, which is kind of interesting because it's, you know, you know, it's not, it's not like the great escape. It's not, um, um, I'm trying to think like, like other other like um, encampment or other encampment movies where it's just like this need to like to a degree the soldiers the the British soldiers here like they would like to get out but they still have like a a hierarchy and a structure to it so that it's not like they're just living in holes you know trying to barely eat and drink at one point Captain Yunoi makes this comment that like you know the soldiers are eating the same stuff as my soldiers. Uh, eating and drinking the same stuff as my soldiers. Um, and so like that first scene one, it kind of just, this gay subtext is, is kind of introduced, but also, um, this, this, this degree of order that the camp has that Captain Yunoi kind of really puts into place. And then he moves on to this trial where you have, um, British major Jack Sellers, who is the David Bowie character, um, is on trial. He is, um, they're accusing him of uh, of um, um, 
trying to like fight off this uh turn turn this village against the japanese soldiers and fight them off when he clarifies that he actually surrendered to them and let a lot of his soldiers run off and he surrendered to the japanese army and has been going through these different camps and so uh, initially they want to you know, just kind of kill him on the spot but um captain Inoue uh they they convince him or he convinces them to allow him to just join this camp as well and there's like this immediate kind of um recognition from between captain Inoue and and, Dave, and jack sellers i think it's more on the captain's side really than the major it's it's interesting you have this this subtext um and like what's i think what's fascinating about the casting of david bowie here is that I think just naturally, because like David Bowie is just naturally androgynous, like, um, like and just immediately you're like, yeah, everybody's attracted to him, no matter who they are. Um, like I like I he doesn't ever have to like work hard to exude this, this like, um, this like interest, like he or or at least like he isn't isn't necessary like his like his levels of interest, the levels of like ways that he deals. Or that he interacts with the captain is very subtle um, because I think just naturally he uh, um, naturally he just kind of exudes that androgyny and so um, the captain is is much more like it, it's almost like the scene in the courtroom is like something like awakens in him and he's just like transfixed to a degree by by the major and so then he, he enters the camp and the rest of the of the film is a lot of just these these push and pulls between the camp. I mean, you have, um, Jack Thompson who plays, uh, the, the, the leader among the British soldiers, um, for the camp, which again, goes back to this like strange structure. Like Lawrence is not really the leader of them. He's just kind of this liaison. You have the Jack Thompson character who kind of is the, is the figurehead for the British soldiers who, you know, whenever, uh, a decision is made like they like meet in a room and like go over stuff and like somewhat negotiate um which kind of throws me off because i'm like no like they capture like what, what why, why like why are you at the table negotiating but they always have they have like a lot of these scenes about of negotiation on like well, we'll do that or we won't give up that or you know things like that uh, things similar to that and it's and it's interesting you also have this whole thing where uh the captain is is constantly asking him to give over hit the, the soldiers of his that have um uh, uh like weapons weapons experts people like that um and he won't and he just like kind of keeps not doing it and for a while it kind of you know it's annoying him but it's fine but then as things begin to escalate as he becomes more um unsturdy like in his position because he's just kind of transfixed by uh the david bowie character he you know he feels like to a degree also lawrence is kind of um pushing this um almost trying to influence him deeper and kind of almost talk to him as like almost peer to peer um he just kind of becomes much more um inscrutable um and 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 just kind of stubborn um to the point where um you start to kind of get these 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 push and pulls and these near-death situations among among a lot of the soldiers 
Um, I was re I was reading a little bit from Logan Kinney, his review that he wrote of this movie for Cinematary, and he also kind of gets it like the it's a it's an interesting movie in terms of like queer canon because and and Logan says it's not explicitly gay or not really explicitly queer um i think you could watch this I, th- I think in theory you could watch this you may not be a super perceptive person but you could watch this and never assume that anybody in this is gay um but at this but I, but because i think a lot of that a lot of that is real subtext and is very subtle um the only like de- like expressively um homoerotic moments is a little bit of the first time they meet in the trial there's like a scene where uh david bowie takes his shirt off um and he's getting like you know sprayed off or something like that um and then you have the 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 pretty famous scene where uh the captain is about to execute the jack thompson character and david bowie like springs in front of him and like kind of kisses both of his cheeks and then it's just in like you kind of have this like freeze frame where like Ryuchi Sakamoto is like just shocked and then like you know it breaks and you see them like tackling David Bowie um which then leads to the captain leaving and, and David Bowie being tortured to, into what eventually will become his death and so um it's just kind of a fascinating um, film on that level, just because it's so it's so. I forgot what the what the what the, how um, looking real quickly at how Logan described it. it, it he talks a lot of it, but it's a it's a movie about uh, a pre- or repression and just kind of the unattainable. That um, as he says, despite "Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence" having no explicit moments of gayness or anything physical beyond the brief shirtless scene two kisses to the cheek and the cutting of hair it's the first film i think of when i think of queer men in cinema they stare into each other's eyes they know that this longing will exist in their hearts until they stop uh, beating like you know there's just kind of this this unspokenness to to the relationship um and it, it's kind of it's fast you know i think initially like coming straight out of it it didn't really i was kind of like wasn't totally sure what to what to make of it but it's been one that's kind of stuck with me just because of like the subtleties in these performances in terms of being a war movie like i mentioned before it's not it's much more about like the connections that the that these men make within the confines of this greater conflict you know you see like the relationship between sellers and lawrence or lawrence and hara or lawrence and the captain um you know the movie ends with Lawrence catching up with with Sergeant Hara, who survives the war but is going to be executed for war crimes in in England, and um, you know it's a really moving sequence because they've kind of gone and some like they the relationship has been very rocky over the course of the movie, but there like is kind of this sense of of uh, completion and Logan kind of hits on that in his review where he says that um, you know a lot of a lot of queer movies like this they always end in you know gay tragedy um and there's like that pain there but this is one i kind of agree with them that it does like it does end in gay tragedy both the bowie character and the sakamoto character end up dying um but it doesn't it doesn't really feel painful um it kind of you know it, it kind of moves beyond that and, and is more about just the tr- just kind of the general tragedy of loss and like how how people kind of connect in these like in these small moments that uh, have great impact 
um, and, and kind of becomes more about like a history of community rather than um, these two individual figures. Um, so it's, I, I don't know, it's, it's kind of, it's a, I think it's worthwhile to watch. Um, it's on Criterion Channel right now. Um, does Sakamoto do the score? And Sakamoto does the score and it's awesome. It's, a, that's where, if you, if, if you listen to anything, go and listen to his um, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, like the title sequence. It's a great piece. What uh, mode is he working in for this movie? Um, it's very, uh, it's very electronic. Um, it's pretty, it's, which again, it kind of has like this weird, um, dissonance with like World War II war and then this kind of electronic score. But I think it works because it, it, it channels in more on like the relationship and in that aspect rather than like, cause again, like you're not going to come into this and be like, we're going to get a good old like fight sequence. I mean, they kill one person with a samurai sword, but it's not a great sequence. <laughs> um, but there's no like, if, unless, and other than them like being in the situation, you wouldn't really know that there's a war going on. It doesn't, it does it has, it really doesn't engage in the broader conflict. So, um, that's what kind of like I it just kind of I, I had to kind of work through how to make make sense of this as um, somebody who's watched a bunch of war movies that are like engaging in the conflict in different senses. So this was a whole different one that I enjoyed. So Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. It's available to you know rent or uh, check out, but if you want to stream it right now, it's on Criterion Channel. So. Um. We got a few minutes left. Do you want to do your PSA for Goodbye Dragon Inn? <laughs> uh, sure. Um, I would like to give a PSA that people should watch the movie Goodbye Dragon Inn by Sai Ming Lang. Um, this is a movie from 2003. Um, it's a Taiwanese film. Uh, Sai Ming Lang is a director of many great films, some of which we've talked about on the podcast. Uh, Rebels of the Neon God days was on our our top 10 list last year i believe uh the whole stray dogs what time is it there was one of my favorites um this movie is about a theater that is shuttering um or we're kind of in its last days before it shutters it seems like that is an inevitability that that's going to happen um and you are watching people watch the movie dragon in by king who um and it's it's like 80 minutes long and almost the entirety of that 80 minutes is in the theater watching people watch this movie um and and watching the various ways in which they interact with it or don't interact with it um and it is a really um thoughtful beautiful powerful exploration of like the nature of cinema if that's not too pretentious for you um it is it is definitely like an art movie and you should not watch it if you are not down for that uh there is there are only two dialogue scenes in the movie and they are both pretty scarce dialogue um it is a movie that uh pitchapong where sethical has called the greatest movie of all time um, though he has only seen it one time and he saw it in a language he didn't understand and he fell asleep during it. Um, which I, I think is just a great encapsulation of both 
the way a picture upon where Sethkul engages with art and what's great about this movie. Because you don't necessarily need uh, to understand the dialogue scenes to understand this movie. You could watch it in a, in a foreign language unsubtitled and, and still get the gist. So, so much of it is just communicated visually. Um, a lot of, of what people are doing um, in the film is actually not watching the film at all, but cruising uh, for uh, gay sexual encounters. Uh, there's like this ritualistic quality to the way that various men will sit right next to another man in an almost empty theater as like a way of communicating that he's interested in something and then moves away after a certain amount of time has passed with the other person not expressing any reciprocal interest. Um, He's like, dude, I'm watching you, Dragon Inn. I mean, I'm trying to watch Dragon Inn. Can yeah, you, please. <laughs> uh, you have you have uh, people eating loudly during the movie. Um, you have a uh, an usher, a woman uh, who's who's working as an usher, but doesn't really have a lot to do during the movie, and so you see her like eat this bun that she's steamed, and like walk around in the back corridors of the theater, and you know look for the projectionist who she has a crush on. Um, and, uh, it, it is like both nothing happens and, you know, lots of, of ruminations are, are had about like the nature of film and like the, the changing nature of like the theatrical experience. Um, I'm reading the, the Nick Pinkerton book about this uh, movie right now. And he has this amazing introduction in that book where he talks about, um, the, um, the shift over from like celluloid film projection to like purely digital uh, film projection in theaters um, and the way that that has had like these huge ripple effects um, at, at the same time that, um, you know, COVID has changed people's relationship to theaters and uh, Disney has kind of dominated the multiplex in a way that has uh, pushed out um, most other content that would be vying for people's attention. Um, and so, you know, if, if you have ever asked yourself the question, like, is cinema dying? Is this a dying art form? Um, this is a movie that is worth um, watching and pondering over um, as, you know, these the very, very small number of people are watching this classic wuxia film. Um, what, two of which are people who are in the wuxia film and sort of lamenting the fact that there's not an audience here to see this movie. Um it is also a movie that is uh, very, I think, attuned to uh, the meditative nature of watching movies. Like, going to see a movie in a theater is like committing to sitting in silence in the dark for, you know, usually about two hours or more um, around a bunch of strangers who are having this sort of collective uh, hallucination with you. Um and uh, and this movie is kind of an encapsulation of that in a really beautiful way. Um, it is um, one of my favorite movies, actually. Um, I've seen it twice now. It is it is um, better on a rewatch. I recommend watching it um, late at night, um, where you might kind of like slip in and out of consciousness. I think that is you know s similar to a Pitchapong's movies. That is maybe an intended effect here. Uh, but if you are like awake and alert and focused, it is a very rewarding watch um, uh, for for many reasons. One of which is that it's a very funny movie. 
um, there is a, a really funny scene in which uh, that like cruising uh, ritual um, gets done in a bathroom and a, uh, a man goes to use a urinal right next to another man, even though there's like 10 urinals open and they both just like stand there for a really long time, not talking to each other. And then a third man walks in and uses the urinal right next to the other two guys. And none of them talk to each other. They just like keep standing there with their penises out, assumingly. Um, and then like somebody, a fourth person comes out of the, uh, the stall behind them. Um, and then after that person has been washing his hands for a little while, you see the hand of a fifth person reach out and grab the stall door and close it. Um, and it's like a, a Jacques Tati bit or something like that. It's, it's really, really funny in like this quiet, protracted way. Um, that, um, is, is like very much like it is intertwining all these like people's individual stories with like their relationship to cinema and the theatrical experience. Um, it's really great. People should watch it. Is it, is it a good one if you've never seen any Sai uh, Meng Lee? I think so. I think that um, this is, I mean, it, it is a difficult watch. All of his movies are difficult watches, but I don't think this is a movie that like you need to see anything else in his filmography uh, to see. And I, from the ones that I've seen, I think it's his best uh, film and maybe one of his most accessible. Rebels of the Neon God is, is much more accessible than this, but it is doing a totally different thing. Um, that's like his take on uh, Rebel Without a Cause or something like that. And, and this is much more like Sai Ming Lang, like operating in um, his artistic mode uh, that he is, he is usually operating in. Um, and uh, you can, it seems like you can rent it from the Metrograph. Is that a thing you can do? Letterbox is saying you can rent it from the Metrograph. Uh, yeah, you can. Um, or you can do what I did and buy the fancy new Blu-ray uh, that Second Run Films did um, that includes an essay by a Pitchapogorous Ethical. Um, strongly recommend. Um, really neat little package. I might try it out. I like a good sleepy movie. Like me, I like a good... S- I like a good sleep movie. You would like it, Zach. This is this is your right. shit. Well, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we're gonna be coming back. We're all gonna have fedoras. We're gonna be talking like this, say, eh? and uh, we're gonna talk some blast of silence. <laughs> Nineteen. One of us might get One whacked. One of us might get whacked. Blast of silence. Nineteen sixty-one. <laughs> After this. Before the hit, the contract's off. You understand me? Yeah, I understand you. You're going to be party to an attempt to kill a man. This is the asphalt jungle. This is New York City, with its fancy women and fancy hoodlums. With its very special beat. Its very special places. Its hunters. And we're back with part two of episode 435 of Cinematary. In this part, we're going to be continuing our quick Patreon picks series with 1961's Blast of Silence, directed by Alan Barron from a script by Barron and Waldo Salt. The film stars Barron, Molly McCarthy, and Larry Tucker. 
A hitman comes to New York to kill a gangster and gets the gun from a big guy with a beard. A lot more happens, but I just like that that's the logline when you Google this movie. <laughs> um, Blast of Silence was filmed in New York City on a budget of $65,000. Writer, director, actor Alan Barron and producer Meryl Brody made the film independently through their Malda Productions. Shooting in 22 days spread over a four-month period, ending January 1960. New York City locations include Brooklyn, Staten Island, and Manhattan, where some interiors were reportedly filmed at a small studio on West 45th Street. The January 18, 1961 Variety uh, announced the involvement of Dan Enright and Alfred Crown's Aladdin Productions and Universal International Films, which had acquired the U.S. and Canadian distribution rights for the film. Uh, Universal's international payout to Baron and Brody was listed as a flat 60000 which they saw, ultimately saw as a poor deal and suspected the studio would profit, quote, many times that sum for ticket sales. They were like, this is the, this is the shit that people are wanting to go see. Brody was quoted as saying the film's gross would be, quote, over $500,000. Brody, the, uh, the, the early James Cameron of just going, this is how much money it's going to make. Um, Blast of Silence opened in early June 1961 in Chicago on a double bill with uh, 1961's Trouble in the Sky. The film was accepted as a U.S. entry at the Spoleto Film Festival in Italy and the Locarno International Film Festival in Switzerland. It was also an invited entry at the Cannes Film Festival in 1961. Uh, The fistfight scene uh, was filmed in Long Island during Hurricane Donna, which happened from September 10th through 12th, 1960, the only hurricane of the 20th century to blanket the entire East Coast from South Florida to Maine. The narration uh, in the film was written by Blacklisted Waldo Salt, using the name Mel Davenport, and read uncredited by Blacklisted Lionel Stander. Uh, In 1961, the New York Times said, Clearly this man doesn't relate to society in reference to the Alan Barron character. Or could it be the other way around? Mr. Barron's enigmatic script avoids easy explanations, but judging from the evidence, the unhappy hero may just have been traveling with the wrong crowd. Much of the confusion in this curious little film seems implicit in the mixed intentions of its stubbornly independent creators. Operating on a minute budget with unknown actors, a handheld camera, and a minimum of technicians, this do-it-yourself team obviously wanted to be offbeat and, quote, arty, while still conforming to Hollywood's tested commercial formulas. The result is simultaneously awkward and pretentious. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, all right. (laughs) Um... Real quickly before we jump in, I do want to, uh, Chad Newsom, who picked the film for us, sent over a note. Uh, so I kind of wanted to just read his comments because he rewatched the film before we recorded this. Um, he said, I think the film is one of the surprises of 1960s American cinema and one of the best films of that era, too. It feels like a long-lost collaboration between Scorsese and De Niro, with a dash of Godard and Melville's Le Samurai thrown in. In terms of its story, it goes totally against the kinds of values Hollywood celebrated, and every time I watch it, its bleakness and cynicism are so striking, from the opening train birth canal metaphor to the cold, muddy death. And the things HW movies, uh, or Hollywood movies, teach us to celebrate, relationships, family, home, free enterprise, those values in this movie are associated with the corrupt criminal Frankie's been hired to kill. 
Plus, unlike so many gangster films or film noirs that are criminal anti-heroes as protagonists whose character arcs are often are often follow an American dream narrative about making it big or being somebody, this movie suggests no such hope. It's just another Christmas, another job, another hit, and Frankie is totally alone in the world with no chance of human connection or peace or happiness, which is why the con- contrast to the Christmas setting and its implied optimism is ingenious. Uh, in terms of the film's style, I love the Doc Port uh, portrait of New York City, the roughness of the film's aesthetic at times, uh, and the beauty of the inventiveness, too, of certain shots, like after he kills Ralphie and the camera holds on Frankie as he walks from a distance right into the camera. And then there's the voiceover narration with its diesel engine tone. Bonus points for whoever can say, baby boy Frankie Bono, in the best gravelly gangster accent. Um, we were trying our best uh, before we started recording. Yeah, Zach, Zach couldn't make it not sound British. Yeah, it got very British. I don't, I, I don't know what, I don't know what was going on. Um, but yeah, blast of silence. So that's a little, a little primer from Chad. Um, what did you, what did you make of this little, this little film? I liked it. Um, it is a very odd, singular film, um, like Chad says. Um, it, um, it makes sense to me that this was like shoestring budget, a handful of people. Um, I didn't uh, make the connection that the director was also the lead actor until uh, you mentioned it in your uh, your intro, Zach. Uh, but it does uh, feel very much like a passion project of, of just uh, a few folks. Um, one thing that I was really struck by was the narration, um, which I, I saw in the opening credits is written um, and, and done by you know, a different person than wrote the script. And so I, I kind of wonder about the process of making the movie and like at what point did the narration get written? Because it seems so integral to what the film is doing that I can't really imagine a version of this movie without that narration. Um, I feel like it would be either really boring or um, really uh, nihilistic if it did not have the narration. Um, because as it stands, um, the movie is really psychologically interesting, um, where you have this narrator um, kind of talking either about the main character or talking to the main character. Um, it might be his own interior monologue addressing himself in the second person, uh, or it might be some sort of metafictional thing. Um, but regardless of, of what the reality of that is, um, it, it gives a level of emotional depth to this guy um, who otherwise just looks like this cold, unfeeling, robotic machine of death. Um, um, but, but, you know, hearing, hearing this narration um, really suggests that um, he is he's grappling with the meaninglessness of, of what he's doing um, and, and and maybe for the first time like fully acknowledging that um, this this life of solitude that he has uh, almost fetishized for so long is just leading him to a dead end um, well it's kind of like something that I think crops up that's becomes more modern as like the you know as the anti and like i'm thinking now of just kind of more modern tv that's like really glorified the anti-hero and it's like you know um that's usually like you know they kind of they like have that peak and then it's just all about the, the you know how are they going to get more and more and more and more corrupt and it's the, and i don't necessarily feel like he gets more and more and more corrupt it's just kind of he gets to this point and he's like well what if i change and 
the kind of the system he has in place is like no like <laughs> you there like there's no like there's no you know getting out of this and going straight there's no digging in, in deeper it's just no you're just you're just flesh that we have to do this he's, he's just a worker in the worst gig economy imaginable yeah. um, where once you're no longer profitable the company we're gonna kill you <laughs> yeah and he's somebody also who just you know i think of other kind of more modern anti-heroes and like the reason that like we you know like people really like latch onto them you know people like um walter white from from breaking bad or something like that is like there is like this charm there's like this you know they're kind of like yeah he's the bad guy but also i like being around him there's nothing that really says that you want to be around this guy Ed. you know he like seems like completely socially inept um you know from the scenes when he goes to see um oh shoot what is the what is the dude's name where's the the, the fat guy with the beard <laughs> as, the, as they say the big guy with the beard um big ralph whenever he goes to see him not that big ralph is like the king of conversation but um like there's just like this like like just like circle and square just kind of hitting each other the entire time yeah or, Ralph wants him to stay and have a drink. Like just kind of, ha- it's, it's like going he, to see like a weed dealer. He's like, I'm gonna give you the gun, but you gotta hang out for a while. And he's just like, No, just give me the gun. <laughs> um, and even like when he goes and sees, uh, what's her name, Lori, like she also is kind of just like, Yeah, like she's more like, Yeah, let's just sit here, we can hang out. And he like try to like make up like a weird pass at her, and she's like, What are you doing? And he's, Yeah, and he just doesn't really, you know. In the uh, the first or second scene of the movie, um, that it's it's when he's intersecting with the guy who's going to give him the name of the person he's to kill, and the narration talks about how um, he's about to come up on an, a bad spot, like the first bad spot. Um, I think that's the the language, the narration. Uh, but the thing that's bad about it is not that this is going to end up being this big chase scene, or he's gonna he's gonna get caught or anything like that. It's just that he has to have social interaction with another human being. Um, and that that is this guy's worst nightmare. It seems like maybe he's chosen this life because it's one that necessitates a certain amount of distance from other people. Um, and so that is only really disrupted when he intersects with what seems to be an old friend from college or high school or something like that. And um, he deeply wants to get out of that interaction as soon as the guy spots him. Um, and, and attempts to in some really awkward ways. Um, but because he's sort of like strong-armed into um, this more social setting of the, the Christmas party that he goes to, um, that, that's the moment where he kind of realizes like, oh, maybe having a life completely disconnected from other people um, is unhealthy <laughs> for me. Maybe it would be nice to talk to people from time yeah, to time. Yeah, that's where like the setting of it being in like Christmas, especially like in New York, really plays into it because it's kind of you know it's Christmas in New York. You think of uh, uh, any other New York Christmas movie, it's all about like they're gonna get together or the family gets together or like you know it's it's all about this kind of uh, community coming you know coming together as one. And this guy, like, like I love the scenes where he's just kind of like walking down the streets, and there's like Christmas trees, and there's lights in the stores, and things like that. And he's almost like walking against those. It's like he's walking against the wind, but the wind is just like Christmas energy. Um, and it's it's great because it, you know, I think just 
you mentioned before like this is a christmas movie but it's never really really like explicitly wanting to be a christmas movie it's more just that kind of accentuates the the kind of loneliness and the distance of the character because that's like the that's like the biggest community comes together holiday yeah we did our uh, a series called not christmas um, several years back, we watched this a bunch of perfect. yeah. We watched a bunch of movies that were not like traditionally seen as Christmas movies, but were set during Christmas and were like exploring themes that were relevant to Christmas. And usually, those themes are the one that you're talking about, Zach. It's about family. It's about togetherness. It's about community. And this is an interesting case in that because it's the opposite of those things. But you're seeing the backdrop of Christmas just just sort of in the periphery of the film. Um, and so it's kind of about those things in in the inverse. Um, you're you're seeing what the absence of those things feels like for somebody. Well, you even think about one of the movies we talked about in that series, Die Hard, which is not a you know, you can be like, oh, it's not a Christmas movie, but it it ends with like him reconnecting with his family, you know, and in this one, it's just like again, like that's what's kind of interesting about this character is that it's it's not that he tries and fails. It's kind of like you there you don't even have the choice to try. Like it's like this is this is what it is, um, and there's only really one path forward. Um, I liked I liked the thing that Chad mentioned, just kind of talking about how um, you know all, the criminal anti-heroes they usually have like you know American Dream, making it big, being someone, and you know this one is just you know another Christmas, another job, another hit, just you know all, all that stuff, all that human connection is just kind of completely left out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe the movie that we talked about in in that old Christmas series that this is most relatable to would be Eyes Wide Shut. Um, where you have Tom Cruise just kind of wandering this city on his own um, for for most of the, the very long run time of that movie. Um, but in the in the case of Eyes Wide Shut, like he has lots of social interactions and he's very charismatic and good at, at like gaming those social interactions and finding a way to get a leg up on whoever he's talking to, whether it be through money or influence or just his sheer charisma. Um, and this is a movie about a guy who's just like trying to avoid any social interaction at all costs. Um, and, and like just the, the sheer loneliness of how that feels. Um, Chad mentioned that shot, the, 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 the specifically like right after he kills Ralph. Um, and that is a gorgeous shot where, yeah, you have like kind long. of two like kind of two buildings to the side. You have the street completely open. Um, it's like it's like kind of sun sunrise to a degree. It's in black and white though, and yeah, you just kind of see his figure pop up and then like walk toward the camera. And it is the super long sequence, um, but deeply effective. Like you know, like like a, a kind of a perfect. I just, you know, had to kind of spur of the moment, kill this guy that really wasn't my intended target. That's kind of going off, off, uh, off script to a degree. And, um, you know, it's kind of, it reminded me a little bit of like, uh, an Ozu movie where he always has the pillow shot where it's like, 
here's the like here's where the family like gets into it they really dig deep into the drama into like what's really hurting adam like and and kind of it's passive aggressive and just kind of hitting and then it goes like a pillow shot of like you know uh, a an empty street or a beach or you know somebody riding a bike you know that just kind of sits there for a few minutes then you go back to the to the to the narrative it almost feels similar to that where it's like that's where you process and like it is a shot where he is alone in the center of the frame, very far away from, you know, anything else, any other visual information um, in the image. Um, and you just, like, stick with him for a very long time. And it, it comes right after a, a bit of narration, I believe, where it, it's talking about um, the feeling of, of anxiety or paranoia that he now has after having to kill this guy. And he says, like, that bad feeling is not going to go away until it's it's in and out of the news. Um, and so it, it then, like, punctuating that, you know, the, the, the again, like, the interiority of a, a trope that we're used to seeing in cinema, like the hired gun. Like, um, he, the hired gun has feelings. The hired gun is worried about what's going to happen to him after killing a person that he wasn't originally intending to kill, um, which is the thing that happens in, in crime movies all the time. Like anytime somebody gets in your in, in the character's way, they just like get guns down and, and the character like, you know, just goes on to the next thing. Um, but you are, are left to kind of sit with this worry that the character has for a long time. And then you have to sit and watch him make like this almost walk of shame, uh, back to his apartment. Um, as he's just like, uh, you know, it visually looks like this stoic guy with blank affect that we're used to seeing in these kinds of movies. But we know from the narration that he's like shaking with panic on the inside. Um, it's also like a very it's not a very showy movie i think it's part of it because of the the budget but um i mean probably the time when he kills ralphie is is the like probably the biggest like most actiony scene you get because it's it's very physical like he, he doesn't like just pop it go in there and go pop like there's like a lot of like back and forth fighting and everything it's much more physical um but when he actually does the hit he's he was hired to come here and do um it's pretty quick. It's very, you know, it's it's kind of it's very quick. It kind of happens. He plans it out. He does it. Moves on. Yeah, you get the sense that he's very good at his job. This is the thing that he's done, you know, dozens of times. It's routine. Um, it's the the kill that he's not expecting to have to do uh, that really rattles him. Yeah, it's it's just kind of that. Um, you know, I, I think a lot, a lot today. You just kind of get get that style, like you know, you kind of have to add this style to the moment, and this kind of just reminded me of of, you know, kind of stripping down the style and making it very bare bone is just as effective because again, like, you you see it, it's not very exciting, but you're like, yeah, he's clearly very good at his job. It's not, it's not a whole production, you know. It's he kills the guy, he sets it up, he walks out the door. Right. You know, Chad in his uh, intro, uh, or the note that he wrote to us, mentioned it's like one of the most interesting um, movies of the 1960s. And one other like interesting singular 60s movie this reminds me of is George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, uh, which was also this shoestring budget passion project made by a handful of friends 
Um, and, and because of the limitations, I guess, of, of their production, um, there is sort of a, a matter of factness to the violence in, in both of these um, that, that I think works really well with the subject matter. Yet yeah, it makes it, um, I think it makes it a little bit more genuine. You know, it doesn't feel, you know, you think of like, um, John Wick or you think of like Mission Impossible or you think of like a, like an action movie when they like kill somebody, there is, there's this choreography involved. There's like this, you know, this very like apparent outward skill to it. Um, and in those like Night of the Living Dead, it's just kind of like this, this brief survival moment. It's not something that they've necessarily built up to. It's just here it is. You got to do something. You have to react. They react, and that's it. And this and this is the very the same way. It's just kind of like no, he did this job. He he's completed. He's done. And that, I think that kind of adds this 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 genuine nature to these right. characters. And if there was a bunch of flashy fight choreography or innovative uh, camera tricks to the cinematography, that would sort of glamorize what this character is doing. And that's not really the intention of the movie. Like it, it wants this to feel bad. <laughs> it wants it to feel kind of like hollow and meaningless, meaningless. Um, and I think it, um, you know, in a in a Mission Impossible or a John Wick, you know, the way in which they show the character's hyper-competence is their ability to kind of um, get in and out of these, like, extremely chaotic, unpredictable environments. Uh, but the character that we have here is a character who's so good at, like, regimenting and planning his life that he never has to get into situations like that, right? Like, he's, he's just going to be in a room with the person he's trying to kill alone and that person's going to turn a corner and he's going to shoot him and that's going to be the end of the interaction right uh, and this the scene where he has to kill uh ralphie is that the guy's name yeah ralphie um, big ralph um like that is not a um a glamorous fight scene and by any measure you know they're they're like really grappling with each other in in this sort of uh unglamorous uncinematic way just kind of uh, uh fumbling in the dark um because neither of them is is really equipped <laughs> for the situation that they're in yeah it's um it is it's just it's very it's it's like the it's like the hypothesis of uh antithesis i mean of um of like a john wick scene which is very like choreographed you can like kind of see each how they've, they've structured each thing this one is just like i don't know <laughs> like you kind of think he might you, you kind of think your main character might die in this because it's so it's just so uh uh uncoordinated for the most part um it's and it's interesting too the like the last scene where um he's killed um, not to spoil a movie that's like sixty years old, but um, <laughs> but uh, uh, that's the only way this movie really can end. Yeah, like when it, it can't end with him getting what he wants and you know going off to to start a family somewhere. You know, not only does he not a, he's not able to get out of this criminal syndicate he's involved in, but even if he did. Uh, the woman that he's imagining a life with is like not actually interested in him. She was just kind of being nice or being friendly. Like, clearly, they had um, some history at a time, but it wasn't anything like substantial. It was just he doesn't have much interaction, so she's like the she's it for him. Um, but no, even that like he comes into it, and it's not like it's not like the the Ralph scene when it, he 
he knows what he's getting into. Like he knows what's about to happen. Um, he just kind of gets overpowered because there's two guys and he doesn't have anywhere to really go. Um, he he kind of almost gets out of it to a degree, but um, but yeah, like it's it's just kind of even then it's very it's very it's very matter of fact. It's it's not very stylish. It's just kind of this is this is you're in the mud now. And neither of those guys who kill him um, or contribute to killing him are characters. And we don't we don't really even see their faces that well. Uh, we don't get names. We don't get backstories. They're just other guys who have been hired to do a job, um, and their job is to kill kill the guy who's decided to not do jobs for us anymore. Um, it's so impersonal and and uh, casual uh, along along the same lines as as the violence we've seen in the rest of the film. Um, you don't really even get a sense of like what is this organization he's working for really like trying to do like who are the people that they're trying to target it's it's just all kind of empty and meaningless yeah the guy who he kills like i mean chad mentioned it also it's just kind of like kind of it seems like a pretty like pretty well off guy it's not like he's a i don't at least maybe i'm remembering it incorrectly it doesn't seem like he's like a rival hitman syndicate or something it's just like right he's just kind of you learn almost nothing about yeah, him. yeah he's just kind of he's like you go to his you go to his house he's clearly pretty wealthy um he and that's kind of he's cheating, he's on, cheating his wife. on his wife i think that's yeah. the the only really substantive thing we learn yeah it's not like it's um it's not like it's like you don't get scenes for i mean it's the movie's an hour and 17 minutes so you're not getting like prolonged sequences of like meeting the gang like whoever whoever uh what the hell is the guy's name? The Frank Bono, Frankie Bono. That's it, Frankie Bono. You don't know. You don't like get to meet the 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 leader of whoever Frankie Bono works for. Um, yeah, and so like it's funny. Uh, Ch- you know, Chad mentioned this feels like an early Scorsese and De Niro uh, collaboration. I could. The guy kind of looks like De Niro. Yeah, I could see it, but at the same time, it's like it's too it's too cut down. Like again, like Scorsese would have had it would have probably been like an hour forty five because he would have had to give some some character to who was like instigating these things. Yeah, there's the uh, the discourse that I remember popping up on Twitter every now and then of like the extent to which. Scorsese is is glamorizing the the characters in his movies. Um, I bet he likes this movie. I'm gonna look that up while you talk. He, he probably does. Uh, <laughs> but I think that one argument or one point to that argument's favor in the argument's favor is that he does kind of play it up and make it flashy and make it fun and like give these characters like interesting witty banter. Um, and you don't get that in this movie at all. Like it's it's so um, pared down um, that there's there's very little possibility that anybody could watch this and think like you know what being a hitman actually does seem kind of cool. Yeah, <laughs> of course he has. Martin Scorsese, who was studying film at NYU when the picture came out, regularly cites it as a key New York movie. And periodically, it gets rediscovered and dragged out of the shadows. Um, of course, he saw this movie. It seems. Right up his alley, um, but yeah, I don't know. I um, I think overall, I uh, I really enjoyed it. It's 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 just kind of like a good, um, good you know penny novel uh, kind of movie. Like it, you know, I don't 
we can we we could probably talk for a little bit longer, but the podcast would be longer in like in total as the movie, um, which is weird. But um, I think I enjoyed it overall. It was it was you know it was a pretty easy watch to a degree. Um, I liked how I really liked just the kind of push and pull between you know Christmas and this character and and just kind of how we envision New York at Christmas time. Um, and I think just like a solid overall solid overall noir that kind of bucks a little bit of the stuff that can kind of get tedious if you're like going through the kind of Hollywood system of noirs and outputs. Noir can also be very confusing, I find. Um, the, the, the plots can be really intricate and there's often a lot of double crossing and mysteries and, and you know, um, in The Third Man you have Orson Welles' character who's like this shadowy figure who doesn't show up until like halfway through the movie. And this is so straightforward and matter of fact uh, that it might be something that I would recommend people watch if, they are, if they've not seen a lot of noir movies uh, that uh, like you can kind of understand the like hard-boiled uh, vibes um, of this genre um, in a in a very like short digestible like thematically clear uh, package uh, because noir can also be kind of like thematically murky too the only unfortunate thing about it is that and I didn't mind it but it can almost be also be viewed as like like uh, uh, an amalgamation of all the noir tropes. I mean, you just kind of have like this the shadowy gunman. You have the uh, the gravelly voiceover. Um, you have jazz. Yeah, you have jazz. You have this great score. You have um, it's black and white. You know, you got a dame. Um, <laughs> uh, it it, it kind of hits all those tropes, but I think it. Um, I think in its simplicity, it works well. Uh, if you can kind of look past yeah. it, just being at times feeling like a like almost an SNL skit of a of a noir movie. <laughs> yeah, I think that the simplicity is like maybe both a bug and a feature uh depending on what you want from your noir. Yeah, it just kind of it, it depends on your uh your your mileage, but it is um I'll say it's a it's in the Criterion collection. It has a it has it has that there. Um I it's not on the it wasn't on the channel this this month when I was watching, um, I don't know how you watched it, Andrew. I watched this um, cut of it that wasn't a it wasn't a great cut on archive.org, and the sound was delayed. Oh, no. <laughs> so I mean, I made it work, but uh, I would like to rewatch this again with like the Criterion version, like yeah. on Criterion. I watched or a Criterion DVD that my public library had, um, and it seemed like a much better viewing experience than you had. <laughs> well it was it was pretty entertaining because like you just hear them talking and you see like him beating the shit out of ralph and you're like well something's about to happen then it like catches up (laughs) oh okay um but yeah no uh thumbs up on uh on blast of silence definitely better than uh the heart is a lonely hunter i gotta say the heart if this dude showed up in selma alabama and just took out some of those characters yeah this would have would have been a perfect perfect meshing of it he, honestly if the if frankie bono showed up there and was the one who killed uh the alan arkin character that would make more sense it than would. what actually happens in that movie it would yeah <laughs> um 
All right. Well, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Cinematary, on Letterboxd, or Twitter and Instagram at handle at Cinematary, and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash Cinematary, where we um, post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. If you would like to support the show, and next time we have a Patreon pick series, you can give us a suggestion. Um, thanks to our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom. Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marsathi, Titus Arthur, and Tyler Chandler. We appreciate the support. Um, next week, we're going to be doing our best of the year, our top 10, Cemetery top 10 um, thing, which I'm going to definitely send the ballots out tonight. Um, but we're going to be doing our Cemetery top 10 movies of the year. What will it be? I think it's going to be I don't uh, know. Knock at the Cabin by uh, M. Night Shyamalan is going to be our number one movie of the year. Calling if we right let now. Reed get involved, <laughs> we let Reed get involved, then yeah, it will be. I, I, I don't know. It's it's funny. Um, for whatever reason, I've been getting labeled as like being a pretentious movie person, which isn't a new thing. I don't think that label's going to apply when I like put out my top 10, which I'll just, you know, let me just, Give you us know, a little sneak spoilers. Peek. Sneak peek will include RRR. Oh, yeah. Include Michael Bay's Ambulance. Wow. Will include Top Gun Maverick. Wow. And we'll include Jackass Forever. Yeah. There's Interesting. four of the ten Let me right see there. if I have a, have, a, have a sneak peek for you. Um, do I still have this list? I might have deleted my my 2022. Oh, I have a, I have a Disney movie on my list. <sighs> That's where we're... Turning Red That's is in crazy. my top ten. That's how crazy we're getting yeah. all. I need to rewatch Turning Red. Turning I Red's like great. <laughs> there, the, I don't know. Like It's like... There's a bunch of stuff from the beginning of the year that I didn't totally um, dislike that I kind of want to rewatch um, that I feel like I'm going to forget. Like we were talking off mic about After Yang, which was a movie that I enjoyed, um, but that came out like in March and it was like kind of in theaters. But then it was one of those weird A24 things where it was kind of in theaters, but then it ended up on Showtime. And I'm like, what the fuck is it doing on Showtime? Nobody is. So um, anyway. But yeah, that's next week. We'll be uh, we'll do we the top ten and go through our our top ten list so you can judge my pretentiousness <laughs> as I have as I you know lose my shit over ambulance, which is still fucking awesome. Um, until then, thank you all for listening and watching. We'll see you next week.